What up, family? This is a sermon from the downtown congregation of Park Church. May it bless your soul as you dig deeper into God's Word. More resources and info are online at parkchurch.org. Good morning, Park Church downtown. Let's get in our seats. Pick up the Word of the Lord. This morning's reading will be from Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8. You definitely have time to turn in your Bibles with me. I'll wait a second. Again, Matthew 9, 1 through 8. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. Um, For those of you who don't know me, I'm Matt Hand, one of the congregational pastors here downtown. And I'm excited because this, what we're coming into this morning, and some of you coming over from the Highlands have already been in Matthew, but those from Grace City are starting up in chapter nine. Last week, Pastor Miguel did a quick review, kind of letting you know where we're stepping into the story this morning but just expositional preaching, teaching from the gospels, just the opportunity to look at the life and the words and the miracles and the claims of Jesus Christ firsthand and to unpack them and apply them and say, what does this have to do with our everyday lives? is one of my very favorite things to do as a pastor. So we get to do that beginning this morning up through the summer when we're gonna do a series in the Psalms. So um, you're there in Matthew 9, And what we do with expositional teaching is we're kind of looking at these stories and we're saying, what is the big idea here? Why is this particular story of all the thousands and thousands of stories of Jesus' life, why is Matthew telling us this one in particular amongst others? And you'll notice this morning that this is a story all about authority. And I say that because if you look at verse 6, Jesus himself says, I'm going to do this particular miracle in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. And let me just kind of give you a quick overview before we jump into this specific text. It's actually interesting that this story in particular is situated between a couple bookends where Jesus is calling new followers, called disciples. And then over here on the backside, he's calling more disciples to follow him. 
And in between these calls to discipleship on either end, there are three stories that Matthew selects that are each showing you some facet of the unique authority of Jesus. First of all, over the sea and the sky, you know, when he calms that storm on the Sea of Galilee. Then secondly, over demonic powers, when he goes over to the far side of the sea and he literally casts out demons from this man. And now here this morning, his authority is demonstrated over sin. And the cumulative message that Matthew is showing you is Jesus has every right to say, follow me, because he in fact has all authority. So when he's saying, follow me, this is not just a person or a rabbi or a teacher or a miracle worker, but it's the son of God saying, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. Come with me. Now, by the way, Jesus' authority by itself is not good news. Um, In fact, it would be terrifying. It would be hopeless. It would be bad news. If the one who has all authority used that authority as a tyrant, if he used his authority to oppress people, we would cower in fear before God and this wouldn't be good news for anyone. That's why it's so important that we see the big picture before we dive into the details of this story. Because as we look at this series of stories, why is the authority or how is the authority of Jesus good news for us? Well, we just look at these stories and we say, well, let's look at what he's doing with his authority. He's using his authority to liberate people from fear, to liberate people from demonic oppression, to liberate people from brokenness, to liberate people from the guilt and the shame of their sin. And so what Matthew's intentionally showing us is that the one who has unparalleled authority also simultaneously has unparalleled compassion. And that is great news. That the one who has authority and power to do whatever he wants loves you and is for you. So let's come back to this story this morning. And the the one big idea we see in the context of Jesus calling people to follow him and then doing what he does in this story this morning, here's your theme. Matthew's saying, orient your life around the one who uses his authority to liberate you from the curse. And it's an invitation. Come to the one. Orient your life. Build your life around the one who has the authority to liberate you holistically from the effects of the curse. Okay, now here's the scene. Let's go to the story itself. So Jesus has just come back across the Sea of Galilee And uh, if you are picking up from a few months ago, those of you coming over from the highlands, Jesus was over there to cast out demons. And this is that famous story where he sends the demons into a herd of pigs and they go rushing off a cliff and the people of that region say, leave, like get out. We don't want your power here. We don't want your authority here because you're hurting our bottom line, get out. So he's come back across the sea And he's resumed this ministry of preaching and teaching and doing miracles. And this particular day, Matthew says, a large crowd has gathered and has caught the attention of the religious leaders. So the scribes, the Pharisees are here and they're observing what Jesus is saying. They're observing the miracles of Jesus. And frankly, they're vexed because Jesus is popular and Jesus is powerful and they don't like Jesus because he's getting all this attention off of them. Now, on this particular day, you notice Jesus is preaching in a house. So you got to picture, you know, open rooms of some kind of probably stone or clay home. You know, and, and Matthew says the house is packed. 
like standing room only. The, the people are spilling out the door. It's like if we rolled up this door over here and people are spilling out the door onto the sidewalk and they're throwing open the windows and they're listening through the windows at no social distancing whatsoever. They're just packed in there on top of Jesus. Meanwhile, Matthew says there are four friends making their way to Jesus in this home and they're bringing a fifth friend with them on his bed because he's a paralytic. He cannot walk. He cannot take himself. And when they get to the place where Jesus is, they realize there's no way we're going to actually get to Jesus. We can see how cram-packed it is. We're not going to get our friend to Jesus unless, and Mark and Luke tell us, they, you know, they spy this by exterior staircase that goes up the outside of the house, as many homes in the Eastern cultures were, with a flat rooftop, extended living area, you know? And they take their friend up on top of the roof, and they locate the place above where Jesus is standing in the front of that house and preaching and teaching. And I, I like Mark's language. They start unroofing the roof. They start just tearing into the tiles. And, you know, we have a skylight right here, so you can almost picture this. If, like, someone wants to get in here, and it's a, it's, it's a packed room, and so they, I don't know, they take the elevator, they bust through the fence that's up there on the roof, and they're, they're coming over here, and you see shadows or forms, and all of a sudden, they're busting through these skylights, and the next thing you know, there's a body coming down. And that's the picture that Matthew's giving us. And the first point I want you to note here, and I'm gonna give you like kind of six C words that kind of tell this whole story. The first key word is the word confidence. Confidence in Jesus' authority. What did those four men, and maybe the fifth one included, who himself was a paralytic, what did they believe Jesus would do for their friend? They believed Jesus would heal him. They believed if we can just get our friend to the master, to the teacher, regardless of what else they believed to be true about Jesus Christ, they had confidence in his authority to heal their friend. And so you got to see this, this dust is settling and Jesus himself is probably covered with it. And verse two says this, when Jesus saw their faith, that is when Jesus perceived their faith, and by the way, let me just pause there for a second. Notice he says their faith, not just his faith. It's not just the paralytic who's coming to Jesus saying, I believe. But the picture, I think, is these friends are believing together with him. And if he himself has given up hope that Jesus can heal him, the friends are believing for him. So Jesus sees their faith and he says to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. I just want to pause there again. This word confidence is like, what kind of faith did these men have that they're like a crowd of people and the roof of someone else's home is not going to stand in the way of us getting our friend to Jesus. We will literally vandalize our neighbor's home to get our friend to Jesus. Okay, let's go on. What's Jesus going to say? By the way, if you were watching a TV show these days, it would go something like this. They bust open the roof. There's dust all over Jesus. This guy's coming down. It's a mess. It's halted Jesus preaching. He turns to this guy and says, commercial break. <laughs> and then we come back to the second C, which is the word claim. The claim of Jesus' authority. This is the second half of verse two, where he says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, does that sound odd to you? I think it sounds very odd to modern ears that they come and this guy's paralyzed. He can't walk. They're clearly having to lower him through the roof of this home. And Jesus says, your sin is forgiven. And it's kind of like, I think you missed the point, Jesus. You know, this is like many of you have played sports on a team or at least had practices or PE class or something. And you're Coach is finally like, okay, water break or timeout. And you're like running over, skating over to the bench. And you're trying to get at the big jug of Gatorade. And the coach is standing right in front of it. And he just puts his hand on your shoulder as you're trying to access the Gatorade because you're thirsty. And he says, you know what? I just, I just want you to know God loves you. And you're like, awesome. I'm still thirsty. <laughs> That's kind of like this. Your sins are forgiven. I've, I, do you see my body, Jesus? I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus' culture believed there was a direct one-to-one correlation between physical maladies such as blindness or deafness or being lame or being a leopard and not just sin in general, not just this idea that we live in a broken world, but they would say there was a particular sin or a particular sin habit that this person is guilty of. And so you could easily walk by people with brokenness in their lives, visible brokenness, and just say, that person's a sinner and dismiss them and exclude them from the worshiping community. Now, Jesus himself says that this is horrible theology. This is sham theology, but this was a predominant view of Jesus' culture. If you have something wrong with your physical body, like the man born blind in John, somebody must have sinned. So what is Jesus doing when he says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven? It sounds like he's playing into that. But I think what he's doing, in fact, is in essence, he's saying, I see your faith. And I'm not going to send you away without meeting the deepest needs of your soul. Because Jesus knows in a minute, you're going to walk out of here. Let me say that again. In a minute, you're going to walk out of here. But I don't want to send you back out the way you came, except your legs now work. He's saying, son, everyone can see that your legs don't work properly but you and I both know your heart doesn't work properly. Your mind, your will, your emotions do not work properly. You've come to me for physical healing, but I have the authority to heal every part of you. And I'm not going to send you back out only healing those parts of you that you have identified as being broken. I'm gonna heal you in ways you could never ask or imagine, okay? So this is what Jesus is claiming. I forgive your sin. And you notice immediately the religious leaders are indignant. They're outraged. And how much of this they're saying out loud and how much Jesus is just perceptive to the way that these self-righteous men are. The third C is the word challenge. There's a challenge to Jesus' authority now in verses three and four. And Matthew tells you, they're, they're sitting there amongst themselves, whether they're thinking it in their heads or they're saying it out loud, this is blasphemy. And Mark and Luke go on and describe this conversation. They're saying, who can forgive sins but God alone? And they understand when Jesus says, I forgive you, he is claiming a divine prerogative. He's saying, I'm God. Now, if you don't catch that, let me illustrate it like this. Let's just imagine. You have to to use your imagination on this, but let's imagine I was an absolute monster in the car on the way to church this morning. Um, 
yelling at my wife, putting my kids in their places, engaged in a few instances of road rage, cutting people off, just doing terrible things. And I get here and I'm like, oh shoot, before I get up and preach, I feel a lot of conviction. So let's say I came up to you, whoever you are, except for you, and just said, hey, I, I feel terrible about the way I spoke to my wife this morning. We didn't even ride together this morning, by the way, so I'm good for this morning. Um, this, isn't like, this isn't like public confession of something that just happened. I'm like, just imagine with me, if you will. Um, this did not happen. But, but imagine I came to you and I just said, hey, I feel terrible about the way I spoke to my wife and kids. I feel terrible about cutting these people off in traffic. And I was just, I was a terrible person. Um, imagine you said, man, listen, it, it happens, I forgive you. So are we cool then? Like, is, is everything okay now? Are we reconciled because you're like, I forgive you? No. Why? Because my sin wasn't against you. You know, I still need to go back to my wife and I still need to go back to my children and say, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? So what is Jesus doing when he says, you're forgiven? Except that he's claiming your sin, paralytic, was ultimately sin against me, which makes me whom? God. Now, you got to understand this charge of blasphemy. They're, they're, they're reasoning through something called a syllogism, major premise. Only God can forgive sins. Minor premise, Jesus claims to forgive sins. Conclusion, therefore, Jesus is a blasphemer. Now, if you remember studying syllogisms in some kind of logic class, you know that the logic of a syllogism can be bomb-proof and you still land on the wrong conclusion, right? So you got to consider another that they weren't considering, which is the same major and minor premise. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus claims to forgive sins. What's the other alternative conclusion? Therefore, Jesus is God. And they're leaving this out because it didn't fit their worldview. The Messiah wasn't who they wanted to be. And I want to pause here and say, these are still your only two options, by the way. Either Jesus is a blasphemer of hell or he is the son of God. I love what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, something the effect of like, let's not come with this patronizing nonsense that Jesus was a great moral teacher, a tremendous example of how to live one's life. Was he the son of God? No, absolutely not. But he was a tremendous man. No, he doesn't leave you that option because he's saying, I'm God, I forgive you. I have the innate, eternal authority to release you from the debt of your sins. And someone, says, someone who says that is in fact either a lunatic, a deceiver, a blasphemer, or is God. So how would we know which one he is? I'm glad you asked, because the fourth C is confirmation, verses five through seven. And this is one of those fascinating places in scripture where Jesus, in essence, puts himself to the test. He's saying, I know what all of you are thinking. Blasphemer, how can he do this? And so follow along with me again, verse five. He's like, okay, guys, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and go home. And of course, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because that's invisible. Nobody can prove that Jesus didn't do that, right? So it's, it's not falsifiable. So Jesus goes on to say, but in order that you may know, that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And verse seven, and he rose and went home. 
That's the Jesus, that's like a first century Jewish mic drop, okay? He's like, bam, okay? What's Jesus doing? I say confirmation of his authority. Why? Because no one could deny. The people who hated him the most could not deny what he just did. But the visible, physical proof of this miracle of making a lame man walk, a paralyzed man walk, was an illustration of an inner, a, uh, an invisible healing of his soul, a forgiveness of his sins. And by the way, it was not only proof of the invisible, let me suggest it also proclaims the nature of the invisible. What do I mean? Well, a couple things here. Physically, that man could not get to Jesus without help. He was dependent on, we might call them mediators or ambassadors or an intercessor to take him to Jesus. Friends, do you know that spiritually, you and I are incapable of going to God on our own? As, as the broken, sinful people that we all are, we are incapable apart from a mediator, an intercessor, the blood of Jesus saying, come, I take you into the presence of God, okay? Physically, number two, this guy was in bondage. You know, his bed, which should have represented a place of rest, a place of rejuvenation, was in fact a prison. It was not a place that brought joy to his heart. It was a place that brought pain to his heart. But friends, you and I physically or spiritually are in bondage to things that promise us rest and rejuvenation. They promise us pleasure. But in fact, they're leaving us stripped of control. They're leaving us imprisoned. And they're called idols. And you notice that just as this man couldn't break through his paralysis by sheer willpower, we cannot break through our sin issues by just exerting more deliberate will. Like, oh, you should just try harder. No, we need someone to release us from that bondage. Physically, this man is burdened, not just with a physical thing, but he's burdened now because of the physical thing. He goes through life with shame. He goes through life with a stigma. He can't belong to the worshiping community because if you're, if you're broken in those ways, the Jewish law says you can't come and participate as a person who is whole can participate. So he's walking through life and some of you are walking through life and spiritually you are carrying this massive backpack of shame, a stigma, and maybe it's a series of bad choices or one just catastrophic bad choice that you made. Or maybe it's something that's been done to you by someone else. And you carry this shame. And you're walking around with this shame. And you can't be rid of the shame. You're humiliated by these things. Again, either that you've done or they've been done to you. And Jesus wants you to know in this miracle, I free you. Not just from the physical thing. But I free you from the spiritual shame and the stigma and the humiliation that you carry. Um, and then finally, just note that, that Jesus is instantly reversing a process of years. Now, Matthew doesn't go into detail, so we don't know, what, you know, did this man have a spinal cord injury? Or is it something wherein like the, all those little tiny neural synapses that are supposed to carry the electrochemical chemical impulses of the brain, like he can be sitting there and just being like, okay, fire, move, legs, and nothing's happening. But because of that, and because of years of that, his muscles are certainly atrophied as well. And when Jesus says, son, get up and go home, he just pops up and goes home. 
instantly reversing something that took years and years and years to land him where he is today. And I want you to hear this, that spiritually Jesus is doing the same. He's not like, okay, I, I, I zero your account, but, but you've got a lot of work to do to get back on my good side. But spiritually, Jesus is saying, I instantly reverse the process, the choices, the consequences of years in your life to make you whole. Not just to put you on the right path, but to make you complete, to make you whole, to make the entire payment on your behalf. Okay, this is all confirmation of Jesus' authority. And we need to see in this story Jesus confirming and proving his authority to forgive our sin, to pay our debt, to, to break our bondage, and to wash away shame just with a torrent of his grace. The fifth C is cost. And I don't want to just blow past this point because I think aside from just the sheer authority and compassion of Jesus for one man who's rained a roof on his head, this is what leaves me in awe in this text. How can Jesus forgive the paralytic? You might say, well, because he's God. And that's right. But my question really is how, by what mechanism can anyone forgive anyone else? Okay, let's say I sin against you, so I owe you a debt. And to make this really simple, let's say I just stole $1,000 from you. Okay, I owe you a debt. And I come to you one day and I say, listen, I sinned against you. I stole your money. It belonged to you and I'm wrong. And I've asked God to forgive me, but I wanna ask you to forgive me. But here's a problem. I don't have your money anymore. I want to repay you. I wish I could repay you but I've wasted your $1,000 and I can't repay you right now, but I want to and I will. And let's say you just said, listen, not another word about this. I forgive you. I forgive you completely. I acknowledge that you took what was mine, you wasted it, but we're never going to talk about this again because I release you of that sin against me. So because you're so kind to me, because I've sinned against you, um, what happens with the debt? Does it just poof, is it gone because you're such a nice person? No, you know, if you forgave my sin, you paid the debt for me, right? And forgiveness, I think that's why it's so hard. I think that's why some of you probably even this morning are holding on to, and now it's become a point of bitterness in your soul. And you're like, I will never forgive this person. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it used to be a, a close friend or even someone in a gospel community. You're like, I will never forgive because to forgive means I have to let it go and I'm suffering the consequences of your bad choice. And you're like, I don't wanna forgive. But I want you to look back at the text with me for a moment and notice this. And I said, the cost of Jesus' authority is our fifth point here. Because notice the moment Jesus says to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven there is an exchange. What do I mean? No sooner are those words out of Jesus' mouth, your sins are forgiven, than the religious leaders look at him and say what? Blasphemer. And the only way that Jesus can release this man of his debt and let the whole community know, I guess he could have pulled him aside and said, hey, just between you and me, I forgive you. And there would still be an exchange, but not in the same way. But he makes this public. He goes public with it to tell the entire community that he's going back to, I've forgiven this man. And to the degree that you think this is because of a sin that he's hidden in his heart, I've forgiven him of that too. And I'm sending him back. But, but this is incredible because 
This is the first time in the gospel of Matthew chapter nine that the religious leaders turn on Jesus right here in this story when they say blasphemer. This is the first time in the gospel of Matthew. Now they've, they've, they've crossed paths. We've heard about the scribes and Pharisees before, but this is the very first time the scribes and Pharisees basically sit back and say, you are guilty of a capital offense. And I'm not overstating it to say that in order for Jesus to publicly forgive this one man, he is saying, I'm going to a cross for you. I will take your debt in this wonderful, beautiful, gracious exchange. I will take your debt of sin on myself and I will pay it in full. I will be willing to absorb the accusation of being a blasphemer and I will die so that you walk through the rest of your life knowing that the son of God has forgiven your sins. Incredible cost, incredible exchange. And I think that's what Matthew wants us to see. So how do you respond to this? This is the last C word, commendation. And you see this in verse eight, there is a commendation of Jesus' authority. Because even though the, the, the religious leaders are leaving indignant, uh, not, not because they've rationally processed it, Jesus has proven who he is beyond a shadow of a doubt. And that's why verse eight says the, the crowds of people who are just trying to discover who is this Jesus, they are in awe and they praise God on account of Jesus. Mark and Luke add, they are seized with amazement. We would say they were blown away. Are you blown away? Are you blown away by the claim of Jesus and the authority of Jesus to forgive your sins, to erase the ultimate effects of the curse in your life, some of them now by reconciling you to the Father, but all of them one day. And by the way, the very next thing in Matthew's story, and if you wanna look ahead, just look one verse past where Krista stopped this morning, verse nine and following. The very next thing is that Matthew tells a story about Jesus going to a man sitting in a tax booth, collecting money. So it's a Jewish trader of his own people, taxing his own people for the benefit of the Roman government. And that man's name is, Matthew, okay? Matthew's writing about himself. This is autobiographical. He's like, so then I was sitting in this tax booth and on the authority of what just happened in my town, Jesus said, leave your identity and follow me. And Matthew's like, amen. And you see why I said, again, the one big idea here, Matthew's saying, orient your life around the one who has the authority to liberate you from the curse. Because when Matthew sees this, he has to tell you the very next thing I did was follow Jesus and orient my life around Jesus because he's that worthy. Okay, Park Church exists, friends, to make and mature disciples of Jesus. We've defined a disciple as someone who has been reconciled to God by grace and is learning to follow Jesus through rhythms of worship and community and mission. So I wanna close here real briefly with just three simple applications, one of each of those, a worship application, kind of a community discipleship application and a mission application, okay? Worship application is this. When you consider your sin and your brokenness, and by the way, I invite you, that's why we do confession, not to stare at our sin and grovel at our sin. I think for every one look you take at sin, take four looks at the Savior or seven looks at the Savior or a hundred looks at the Savior, but you need to look at your sin. You need to acknowledge your sin does it leave you like it left this crowd in awe, in amazement, in wonder that Jesus says, I'll do the same exchange with you that I did with him. 
I will take your sin, every bit of it, your guilt, your shame, your penalty, the patterns in your life, put it on me, call me a blasphemer, crucify me as a sinner, I release you. Okay, a, a worship application is that our lives ought to be about awe and amazement and wonder at this beautiful exchange. See, what is, the, what is the worst, what is the most painful effect of the fall on your life? I mean, just, just as you day-to-day would experience it, you would probably not say, oh, the fact that I, I, I should have ended up in hell, but I didn't. Um, but day-to-day, and maybe it's a physical thing like chronic pain or something very serious in your health. Maybe it's a, an emotional thing that you're like, I, I struggle with a particular disorder. It's been diagnosed and I have to take medication for it, but it keeps coming up over and over again. You know, maybe I'm a very angry person or a very anxious person or whatever that is. Or maybe it's a relational thing or a vocational thing or a financial thing. What would it mean to you if Jesus walked into, his, into your life with authority and just said, right now, boom, just like this, that thing is gone. You are completely healed. That'd mean a lot to you. It'd mean a lot to me. Do you feel at least that much joy and release and awe and wonder and appreciation and praise because he said, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven too. Okay, so when we sing here in a minute, let's sing with all our heart because we're singing to the God who came in the person of Jesus of Nazareth and said, your sins are forgiven, okay? Uh, A discipleship application I want you to notice, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but I want you, where is, where is human religion in the story? It's in the room. And it's powerless, right? Not only is it powerless, it's proud, it's arrogant. Doing nothing for the paralytic, not physically, not spiritually, not emotionally, nothing except judging. And Jesus walks in and is like, son, I see you, I love you. Your body's healed, your mind's healed. Your soul is healed. So a a discipleship application is if we believe that Jesus is that open, that invitational, that welcoming about forgiving us. Some of you right now, you're continuing to run and hide in shame and you're like, no, I will never acknowledge that I did these things, that I'm guilty of these things, that this is a part of my story. Some of you are just kind of the opposite. Instead of running and hiding, you're just like face up, chin up, and there's this arrogance, there's this pride, there's this self-righteous projection over other people. So long as I keep judging and talking over other people, I don't have to deal with my own stuff. And a discipleship application is if we really see the authority and the compassion of Jesus in a text like this, then it would be a regular pattern of our lives to come daily over and over and just say, I'm broken, Jesus. I confess again. I mean, I love the, the confession that we did this morning. It's like, even when I'm getting it right, I'm just nailing it. Um, I'm so often, or it's actually saying like, even when I'm not explicitly sinning, like doing these horrible things, I'm leaving all these good things undone. I just don't care about the things that Jesus invested his life in. And as a community application of that, if we ourselves are coming to Jesus and just saying, I am broken, And because this isn't religion, this is the gospel, and I'm invited here by grace, and I'm kept here by your grace, I can be honest with you, and I can be honest with you, but are you the kind of person that's making it easier for others to come and live in honest, vulnerable community 
and getting the real-time healing that they need, or are you the kind of person that's making it harder because of pride and judgment in your life? If we believe that Jesus has the authority and the compassion that he says he has in this story, we would be making it easier on each other. And finally, one, one mission application. Um, like this paralytic, you have friends, you have loved ones that cannot get themselves to Jesus. And it's maybe because they're like, I've tried and tried and tried, and it just, there's some barrier. And maybe it's, maybe it's mental, um, maybe it's relational, like I'm gonna have to give up certain things to get to Jesus. Maybe they're like, I, I just, I, I don't even care. But whatever it is, it's some barrier. And I think one of the takeaways missionally from this text is that we ought to be looking around and saying, who is not getting to Jesus on their own? And because I believe that Jesus will heal them if they get to him, I'm gonna be bringing people to Jesus left and right, right? Like I, I'm going to be identifying barriers in people's lives to get to Jesus and I'm gonna be unroofing some roofs. I'm gonna be tearing through some tiles. Uh, I, I'm gonna be a, a little bit reckless and I'm gonna err on the side of just getting people to Jesus because I believe he has the authority and the compassion to change their lives. Okay, so again, one more time, Matthew's saying, if you see the authority and the compassion of Jesus, you will orient your own life around the one who is liberating you from the curse and you will be passionately, regularly bringing others with you also, amen. Let's pray for a moment, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful short story. Thank you for the love that was demonstrated to this man. First of all, by his friends. I mean, what a gutsy thing. What a risky thing. This was a small town, Capernaum. So I'm, I'm sure in a sense that the people who were losing their home to vandalism knew the people who were doing it to them. But thank you that when this body was lowered through this hole in the roof, you did not rebuke. You did not condemn as those staring eyes of the religious leaders were just quick to condemn. But you knew the deepest cries of this man's soul. And you were like, hey, I'm gonna heal your legs here in a second but you're walking out of here with everyone else in this town knowing I have forgiven you. God has forgiven you. Lord, let your forgiveness of our sin leave us in awe and wonder and praise just like it left these crowds. And by having patterns of regular confession of our own sin, maybe journaling, Maybe end of day, just accounting for how did I use my day? How did I glorify God? Where did I fall short? And not using this journaling or this brief meditation as a way to beat ourselves up and feel worse, but as a way to make much of Jesus. Just, man, I need this forgiveness every day of my life. Isn't he good? Help us to be the kind of individuals, the kind of families, the kind of gospel community groups that because we're dealing with our own stuff in humility, 
we are creating the kind of environment, the kind of atmosphere, the kind of culture that makes it really, really easy for other broken people to also come to Jesus and get the healing that they need. Instead of hiding, instead of living in shame because of something they've done or something that's been done to them that's tragic, that's awful. And Lord, send us out this morning to live our lives on mission. This is, this is good news that's too wonderful to contain. Do we believe, Spirit of God, that if we just get people to Jesus, it will make a difference in their lives? Maybe there's someone here that's been praying for a spouse or a child or a parent or a roommate or a friend or a coworker and they've already given up or they're on the brink of giving up and may they hear your words, your heart in this story, keep trying, keep believing for that other person because Jesus saw their faith and healed him. Or help us to model and pattern our own lives, first and foremost after our Savior Jesus, but also after these men of courage, these men of faith. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.